You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, folks. Hey, another episode of Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. Before I get to our fantastic guest, who I might say is also a returning guest, my third ever returning guest. It's because we're getting notorious around here. And, and it's also because I've, I've got a handful of guests that when I interview them, I just keep thinking, man, I would, I would love to hear more from them. So today's guest is one of those. I'll, I'll get to him in a minute. Just want to let everyone know, um, as you're probably aware if you've been listening, 2021, we're launching a, a new online initiative to really help people in the home place and in the workplace really learn how to be calm, aware, and present. I guess you could say it's like the flip side of managing leadership anxiety. If, if that book and, and this podcast is all about the problem, uh, The Capable Life is really about helping us move toward a vision where you can notice the space inside you, notice the space between people, and then pay attention to the space between you and God. So you can be a calm, aware, present human being. So as of this podcast, we're in the beta phase. If you want information about it, you can sign up at capablelife.me and you'll get on the beta list. You'll get a snappy little email from me. you get some information. Uh, I think right now the beta price is $22 a month. And depending on when you're listening to this, I think beta expires like December 4th. If I was a better marketer, I'd actually know all that stuff. But you can go to capablelife.me and sort it out. And uh, that leads us beautifully into my guest today, <laughs> Sean Palmer. Sean is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Church in Houston. He also does a lot of coaching in Enneagram and public speaking. He's an author. Uh, his book, Unarmed Empire, is phenomenal. And it's been out a few years now. But recently, I want to say, Sean, maybe a month ago, Sean released this killer book on the Enneagram called 40 Days on Being a Three. Most of my audience, I think, is pretty Enneagram savvy. So obviously, Sean himself identifies as a three. He's writing two threes. Uh, I've got the book. I'm actually sitting right in front of it here. Great, great book. And it's part of a series just of simple daily reflections to help you navigate your Enneagram number. So Sean, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm sure all of your guests would love to come back just to kind of hang out with you and to hear your accent um, and make us feel like we're taking a trip someplace while we're quarantined at home. I am like a virtual vacation for, for the master. <laughs> but I, I think there's actually three guests that really would not want to come back. Like I can even tell when I was interviewing them, they're like, I'm either boring them or they don't want to play in this field. So, But I think it's fair to say the majority of guests have a, I don't know, man, a pleasant time until it gets to the gauntlet and then they're usually in tears. It gets really uncomfortable. For <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm honored that you would have me have me back. Yeah. Hey, uh, let's get into this book. Man, it's so good. Cause and of course, I mean, you you're right, you're reading my mail. I identify as an Enneagram three. Mm -hmm. I actually can't tell if I'm a three wing four or a three wing two. I'm still after all these years trying to sort that out. But man, a, a tight book, it's tiny. It's like a page or two every day. Right. So th there's no right. excuse to not get into it. And I think like all good writing, it, it evidences that you must have done a lot of editing because this yeah. is rich. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, I am not, um, 
I don't like writing short little things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I, I, I want to flourish and to tell, I'm a storyteller by nature and I can't really say anything without telling a story. So just getting this down to um, bite-sized chunks where people could spend, um, including the practice, because there is a practice that goes along with every day. So it doesn't take up an hour, but like, hey, you can sit down for 15 minutes and uh, let this set your intention for the day or to guide you um, in the in the day. And it's a little bit more and more focused than some of the um, other Enneagram resources that are out there that might email you a, a sentence or two every day. But it's not so big that it's one of the, the kind of thing that you could you'd start and put down, especially for Enneagram threes and other aggressive types, where it's like, I just don't have time for that. I need to get on with my day. So I'm hoping that it's very useful, um, which means it kind of had to. There are some places where it's tight in the writing. There are some places where, you know, I'll, I'll confess it's a little bit clunky because I just had to get to the next sentence. But uh, I think I'm really pleased with what IVP did with it. It's turned out to be a beautiful book. And folks have told me that's been really helpful. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. You know, in the day of of cutting budgets, it's actually physically a beautiful book. It, it mm-hmm. feels like, even though it's skinny, it feels weighty. And uh, in one of the days, I, I don't. It was one of the earlier days. You you wrote about how an Enneagram three wakes up already moving, like we're always in motion. And right. So I, I thought that was the genius of it. Is it's it's only asking me to pause for about ten minutes. It's about how mm-hmm. long it takes me to read it. And then, like you said, the practice. Is that intentional for threes or is this whole series going to be tight like this? Well, the whole series is going to be tight in terms of the length. So just want your listeners to know, regardless of where you identify on the Enneagram, in the next 365 days, um, a book like this, a daily reader will be released for your number. But if you'll notice in the practices, and I say this in the introduction of the book, that none of the practices or very few rather of the practices are going to ask Enneagram threes to do something. Uh, because we're really good at that. And what I'm trying to do is help us get in touch with the more repressed parts of ourselves, feeling, responding to feelings, like accepting that the way we feel about something, even if we don't act on it, but having the feeling itself is okay. And those feelings actually matter. So many of the days, uh, I'm just inviting us to spend some time there and to center there. And so that part is very intentional, but the length will be universal across all nine books. If you're talking to your typical Enneagram 3 leader, how long do you think, literally in, in minutes, how long do you think is healthy for us to pause and try to get in touch with that feeling? Longer than we want. Okay. So <laughs> one of the um, practices in the book I write about is that for one, one day a week, at least one day a week, there's a specific place in my home where I sit for an hour and don't do anything. And that is a long hour. And it's a gateway into contemporary prayer. And I would suggest that all Enneagram three leaders, all aggressive types, three, sevens and eights, really um, embed themselves in contemplative prayer. But the slowing down is really hard for threes. Yeah. So if you can start with 20 minutes, and work your way up to 30 minutes and just to take some rest there. And I would also say, because what you'd work your way up to is Sabbath, a complete Sabbath day. But that is so difficult for threes that if you try to do more than about 15 or 20 minutes at the outset, you're sunk. Yeah, my experience, most leaders, this is a generalization, but most leaders, regardless of their Enneagram number, 
tend to struggle to know how they're doing. Like they tend to not be very in touch with their emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. Is that your experience across the board with faith leaders? If we just put Enneagram on pause, would you say the same? I think there is endemic in the pastorate. Yeah. A dismissal of your feelings. And I think some of that is actually pastoral, right? That we are called into spaces lots of times where our primary concern, I know you used to be a chaplain, where our primary concern is not how we feel. Yeah. At least in that moment. And our focus needs to be the other. So we are, we are actually kind of trained to do that. But what happens for too many of us, if we never go, we never deal with all of the feelings that we are experiencing, and then we come crashing down or we act out in a way that's really unhelpful because we haven't been doing the self-care along with it. My advice is always to force faith leaders, particularly that we have to have space for self-care because a lack of self-care leads to inevitable self-medication. That's when folks start. I knew a, a guy in ministry, for instance, who is extraordinarily capable. Um, he became the executive pastor of a really large church. And the pressure was, and he'd always been in large churches, right? So he had a change in vocation inside it. And I talked to a friend of his, I talked to his wife, actually. And she said, the difference is now the bottle of bourbon stays out on the counter and doesn't get back in the shelf. Mm. And that's a failure to deal with our emotional well-being. So that's why I think faith leaders have to have um, someone they can talk to, whether that's a therapist, whether it's a spiritual director. You have to have a place to take those emotions because so oftentimes the vocation itself, it's inappropriate for you to deal with those emotions. Yeah, right. It's hard to be. Yes, I, I see what you're saying. What, what's interesting, what was counterintuitive in chaplain training was the idea that you actually can't be fully present to people unless you're aware of your own feelings in the moment. And of course, what you're saying is you can't then tell, like Mm -hmm. there were times I remember keenly, if I had attended to four or five deaths in a, in a day, maybe I'm doing one of those marathon overnight shifts and the beeper goes off at 2am and it's death number six. I'm really angry at the person for inconveniencing me and dying. Mm -hmm. So to your end, it's not, wise for me to say that to the widower in the room. But you but you needed to know, you need to be in touch with it. Right. Yourself. If I wasn't aware of that, I was a dangerous chaplain, like right. coming in unaware. And I think as a three, that is the challenge is the, even like I've been doing this work 25 years, my ability to remain pretty unaware to how I'm doing is, is pretty mm-hmm. disturbing. Right. What right. do you... And I look... I love what you said about uh, being aware of your feelings, because what I'm not what I'm not at all suggesting is that we set those aside. And like to your point, um, I do some work with city governments and it's amazing when you look at officer involved shootings, how many of the officers who are in those places who experience that two things happen very often. They are alone. So they're in a squad car alone. So they've been in isolation or they're responding to that call soon after a domestic abuse call. It happens all of the time. So actually, one of the one of the uh, questions we need to start asking as a culture when we see an officer involved shooting is what did that what other things had that officer done the day before? And it's being in touch with, man, I just came from this domestic abuse call where this wife or this kid or whatever is, is abused and I can't believe the injustice of this. And I've been, I've been triggered in some way. 
right? And so then I go and use my trigger to fix all the other things I can't fix in the world. And so to be in touch with who you are takes a certain level of intentionality that does not come in the moment, Yeah, right? You can't be trained to be healthy in the moment. You have to train outside of that. And that's really where Enneagram 3's struggle is because we got, you know, the lost childhood message is that it's not okay for you to have your own feelings. And so we act like those don't exist. And then we actually go out in the world, sometimes in positive ways and other times in in much more negative ways, and are acting on emotions that we refuse to admit exist. So the idea that it's hard to do it in the moment, I... Can we talk through the two commodities that we have available, which is, I think, money and time? So you Mm -hmm. talk about getting a coach or a therapist, spiritual director, that's money and time. And then for people who don't have money, it'd be neat to hear what they can do with their time. Or maybe you'd be saying, everyone can budget for this. Like you can put this on your church budget, for example. What, What are some practices, Sean, that you do to get in touch with how you're feeling and to kind of cultivate your soul health so you can lead well? Well, I'm, I'm biased on this question, Steve, because I'm on the board of a nonprofit called 1128 Ministries. And what we do is we provide soul care for spiritual leaders. So that's one-on-one spiritual direction. That's groups. Um, most of those leaders that we serve are women serving in ministry. And we think it's absolutely critical that every person in ministry have a spiritual director or is experiencing spiritual direction in some way. Matter of fact, I'm on the board of another ministry and we're having our annual board meeting later today. And because I'm the vice chair of that board, we have a new executive director and I'm saying to the rest of our board, we must find the money for our new executive director to have spiritual direction because if not, they will implode. And so if you are a top level leader at a church, if you're an executive pastor, a lead pastor, one of the ways that you best serve your staff and your church is by making sure that your other pastors on staff are spiritually and emotionally healthy. And so that's the money piece. Second to that for the non-money piece is, and my friend Ian Cron says this about the Enneagram, that it's great for people who can't afford therapy because it actually does give you some direction to go. And so many of the resources are either low cost resources or free resources, but they do involve the investment of time and you reflecting on your life, examining your life, asking yourself deep questions about who it is you are, asking the same of those who are around you, your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, like, what do you see? What do you see when I do this? What are ways that I behave compulsively? And like things like 40 days of being on being a three, like it's designed just for that to get us to ask questions that maybe inside the unhealth of our number, we might not be willing to ask. My experience when I'm, I'm talking to a lot of pastors nowadays on how they're doing and uh, all, all the statistics are playing out that most of the pastors I'm talking to struggle to find friendships outside their church. And like, if I just say to them, you know, who are three or four other people in ministry that you can form a friendship group with? How do you go about, well, let me ask you this, Sean, how long have you been in Houston? Well, this go around, we've been here three years, but I lived here 10 years, 10 years before. So this is like our 13th year in Houston. Okay. When you moved three years ago, did you have to make new friendships or did you just cultivate your old friendships? 
I made new friendships. Yeah. yeah. I think it would be, this may seem like a really basic question, but I think it would help a lot of people who have reached out to me that just struggle to find a peer group in town. Mm-hmm. How did you make those friendships that are soul fueling where they, you can ask each other these kinds of questions? Well, this is really hard, Steve, because most adults don't have the time or inclination to do it. Yeah. Most of our relationships that we call friendships are what my wife and I call friendships of convenience. That means like our kids are the same age or at the same school. We live kind of close to each other. But usually what happens is when the convenience, that touch point goes away, that relationship goes away. Friendships take work and time to develop and cultivate and a level of intentionality that we're not used to. Because when you are in elementary school, high school, college, there are people around all the time and you kind of fall into relationships with them. That's not the same when you are an adult. And so we look around and go, oh, I'm 30 plus now. Um, I don't have any friends. Well, it's not unlike dating. Yeah. So what if you took the approach that you might take if you were dating? Deliberately seeking people that you're interested in and investing time with them over time. So when I came to Houston, there are a couple of people who are on staff or like, oh, man, we kind of really click. Um, I really like them. Let's make a habit. And every Thursday we would get together after work and just kind of talk and share life for an hour, hour and a half outside of work. And at the beginning, most of those conversations were about work. And then they try to they kind of slid about marriage, about dating relationships, kids. And over time, it blossomed into a full friendship. That is the kind of, hey, regular day of the week, I'm calling you just to see how you're doing. So one of the things I talk to people about very frequently, Steve, is that there are 3 a.m. friendships. And most of us, especially in church context, we have a lot of 3 a.m. friendships. And that's actually not a very good marker for friendships. When people say, like, if I had an emergency at 3 a.m., I'd call X, Y, Z person. Like, I'm I'm locked in. Well, heck, I probably got a list of 200 people I could call at 3 a.m. and I was in an emergency would help me out. Not because we have a great relationship, but because they're good people. Right. Right? It's the 3 p.m. relationships that take time where it's 3 p.m. on a regular day and I can pick up the phone and say, hey, what's going on? I just wanted to hear your voice, see what's going on with you, especially during pandemic. Um, This is what happened today. And you can talk about the modalities of life. Like that's the kind of relationships that give life, but they take work. Yeah, work and time. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying about it being like dating. I do think that's why a lot of pastors struggle because it, it's so vulnerable. I, I don't know, it was about 10 years ago now, I realized I needed to cultivate life-giving friendships outside my church with people who understand what it's like to be a pastor. That was my, I actually had a criteria. Mm-hmm. And I had some friendships inside the church and some of them were great and some were rough because some of my rougher inside church friendships really thought that criticizing me and how I do my job is a great way to build a friendship. <laughs> you know, and I love those uh, cr- criticism as a right, spiritual just, gift. We're just helping right. you out. And what what and just to testify what I learned about myself is I was quite insecure as a leader and I was attracting that kind of person. You know what I mean? Like I was mm-hmm. I was so mm-hmm. concerned with being a dominating leader, I was too collaborative. And so people would come okay. and give me their stupid ideas. And it was my fault. I'm the one that <laughs> that kind of said them, I want to hear more from you. Tell me more. 
Anyway, right, that right. that led me to look outside the church. Not that I don't have great friendships inside the church, but um, this one guy named Dave, who himself is one of my dearest friends. Dave was a gold mine because he happens to attract the kind of people I like. So becoming Dave's friend opened up like this vein of 10, 12 people. Um, and that was that was interesting. But to your point, we have all gone away together. We've we've stayed up late together. We were in a regular habit and and yeah, it took a couple of years, but it's I, I die for those people. I, I could talk about friendship a lot because it's one of my my pet topics to speak of. And I think what recently I have made had to make really clear decisions and distinctions in my own head that there are some relationships that could not be for me what I needed them to be. And because of that, that I should spend less time there. But at the same time, uh, someone convened a group of people um, from across the country who were all sort of looking for the same thing. And um, it's um, men and women, it's multiracial. And we get together online once a month to talk. And what that has become is like, oh, I really like this person. Let me set up a time for the two of us to kind of get yeah. to know each other. And and I'm calling this the New Friends Collective, right? Because it is okay. And, and it's hard for people to get to this point sometimes where we determine, you know what? The reality is I need new friends and that's not going to just happen. Yeah. And I'm going to have to put some effort into all of this. And on, especially for people inside the pastorate, our church has expectations of us. We already have a dual relationship with them, which isn't the healthiest kind of relationship. But then with people outside, and I'm sure you experienced this with folks you were looking for who understood what it needed to be, what it meant to be a pastor. So for you, know, you might have to relabel this podcast when you upload it, but you have to break through what I call the BS bubble. Yeah. Um, and that is what happens in ministry where everyone's got bravado about who's the best leader, best preacher, biggest church. And like to lead with vulnerability, it always takes someone to do that. Yeah. And then you can start to actually experience a kind of wholeheartedness in relationships. So like, I'm always on the lookout for people who have the capacity for friendship. And the truth is not everybody does. And one of the ways that spouses and other people can serve. And I saw this a lot uh, earlier in my ministry with, especially among men, and this is not meant to be an indictment, like men would try to form friendships and they really need friendships. And the systems, the family systems they were in would say like, if you've got extra time, you need to spend it with the family. Yes. And I know that happens to, um, to wives as well. And so my wife and I have always made the just always been like, when you need to go spend time with friends, whether it's a weeknight or whether y'all need to take a trip together, you're always free to go because we we acknowledge that the other needs that desperately. I love that, Sean. We do the same thing as we budget. Uh, we, we lived in Las Vegas for a while. My wife's formed some deep friendships that are now wonderful, those wonderful old friendships you form. Mm -hmm. And we budget money and time every year for her to connect with them. Uh, and the same, it's like... When I talk to particularly men who say, I have these commitments at home, somehow it doesn't occur to them that you can simply have a conversation with your spouse who would dearly love for you to, to develop <laughs> life-giving friendships. So right. long as you are offering her the exact same courtesy, it's like a mm -hmm. no-brainer. I think the other thing I run into is, is pastors don't, they, they don't, how, how do I say it? 
they believe they're cheating the church if they're using vocational time to build friendships. They don't believe it actually benefits the church. Yeah. And what you see time and time and time again is a lot of the pastors that we see implode at big churches and small churches. Cause I, I spent most of my career um, pastoring churches of 120 or fewer people. Yeah. Right. So in 25 years, I've spent four of those years at a church bigger than like 120. Yeah. And what happens when leaders implode, my first question is who is speaking life into these women and men. And usually it's no one, right? Because they have become so isolated for lots of different reasons. But one of them, a big one, is that they've not cultivated relationships that have that kind of permission giving for someone to look them in the eye and say, I don't think right now you are living up to who you say you want to be. Yeah, And they are allowed a level of immunity created by a lack of relationship. I think I think it's profound. I actually would like to stay on this for a little bit, Sean, because what's going through my head is, I, okay, I've done 25 years in ministry in all manner of roles, 15 of them as the lead pastor. When I stepped into the lead chair, it felt like everything changed. Um, the pressure, the responsibility, like that's what it feels like. And so I've spent 15 years trying to shed, not be irresponsible, but carry an appropriate weight and no more and no less. And it's a constant battle. Part of the work I've been doing, I guess in the last three or four years, it's pretty recent, is naming when I'm hurt mm. and naming when somebody has actually stabbed me. I, th- I don't know if it's Enneagram 3 or pastors or type A leaders, because I would identify as all of that, mm. where it's hard for me to admit that hurt me. Like that, yeah. that comment or that thing, just to test, I was in therapy uh, a few years ago, one of my therapy sessions and great therapist. And he said at one point, um, I'd been with him a few times. He said, Hey, I'd like you to explore the implication that you're an HSP. And I said, Oh, what, what's an HSP? And he said, Oh, it's a highly sensitive person. Uh, You feel deeply. And I just immediately burst into tears. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, I think you probably are. Um, And that was really freeing for me to say, I take criticism deeper than many people do. Right. Right. But that's also part of what's blocking friendship is the, the vulnerability to sit down with my friends and say, I got this text or email and it really hurt. And now I'm trying to figure out whether to tell the person it hurt or whether just to deal with it. But right. I, I think there's something in lead that that's blocking us as well from friendship, I think, whatever that is. Yeah. And the, the criticism's nonstop, right? So you, um, I can't remember, you were so gracious to have me preach for your church. I can't remember the size of it. Of the church? Yeah, of your church. Well, not, I wasn't there, so. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. I, I don't know how big we are. We're, we're probably 1,500 to 2,000 people who right. would circle around the church and about 1,000 that attend. Okay. So like 1,000 people, right? There's no way to please a thousand people. Yeah. To use some Enneagram language, because you are three, that means that you are in what's called the feeling or the heart triad. And so you feel a lot from everybody else. And so you, you instinctively know back pre COVID when everybody, when people were live, uh, how, what you said was received by most people. And it's never going to be a hundred percent. And so you're already the, the very act of doing that, is vulnerable enough. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that Enneagram 3s behave the way we do 
is not because we don't feel, but because we do feel, but we feel everything and it becomes overwhelming. So we decide I'm going to take these feelings and set them aside because I can't move forward in life and deal with those, but they just stack up and stack up and stack up. So there's no way to avoid being both a public person and an uncriticized person. Yeah. And the criticism feels so much heavier than the praise. And we are spiritually trained for good or ill that we all glory goes to God, right? And someone says you did something good. It wasn't me, it was the Lord. Yeah. (laughs) But when something goes wrong, we don't say all blame goes to God. So we're in this crazy position where the praise doesn't matter. We don't get to carry that but we get to carry all of the blame and all of the criticism. And like we, then we feel like we have failed God, we have failed our church, we failed our family, and it's easy to walk around most of the time feeling like a failure. And the thing about it, you are a highly sensitive person, not just to your feelings, but to everybody's feelings. Right. Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it is my superpower. It's how I can come into a room and know what's going on between people, which was... Mm-hmm. Back in the old chaplain days, that was the game. Right. How do you walk into a room and measure what's going on? I I think the other thing, Sean, is I think as leaders, one area of health I've worked on in my own life is just my natural default to see myself as a victim Mm. and rather than a perpetrator. And it was actually very healthy for me to see, not in a domination perpetration way, but what have I contributed to this systemic problem? Right. I was watching a, a sermon... Uh, recently, it was at a, a black Pentecostal church. I, I need to look up the guy. Uh, let, let me see. Let me just pull him up here real quick while I'm burning podcast time. Oh, Bishop, <laughs> Bishop G. E. Patterson. Okay. And a Pentecostal preacher in Memphis, Tennessee. He reads Psalm 3 and then he announces the title of his sermon. He says, Surrounded by enemies, but God delivered. That was the title mm. of the sermon. Surround, it's in Psalm 3. Surrounded by enemies, but God delivered. And everyone broke out into spontaneous dance and revival in the organ player <laughs> off he went. And it took him seven minutes to get back to the sermon. He just let it yeah. happen. It was this wonderful moment. But I was watching, obviously, he tapped a vein where everyone in the congregation is like, yes, I'm surrounded by enemies and God will deliver me. And the thought that went through my head is like, well, how many times have you been the enemy for someone else? We don't right. think about that. This is my long-winded way of saying... I feel criticism deeply, but I also like to be a provocative preacher. Why in the world do I think I can have both? Right, right. And that's the that's the uh, perpetrator side of me. Not that I'm perpetrating bad on people, but that I'm setting myself up for criticism by this other thing I value. And if I'm not aware of that, I take the criticism more personally. But if I'm aware of, look, I like to be provocative. I right. like to be prophetic. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. Like... We, we've done a series on politics and racial challenges in our very white church. And it's probably the most feedback I've gotten in <laughs> years. Um, and I've, been, I've done fine through it. Yeah. Um, but I shouldn't be surprised if I'm talking about white privilege and Black Lives Matter and political tension that I'm right. going to get a lot of heat. But, but I, oftentimes we act like we shouldn't get any heat. Right, right. I don't, I don't know where the question is in that, but we're we're generating some of this. Does that make sense? It's true. Um, I think the, um, the careful thing, and this is from some of my work with preachers, um, 
And most of the preachers I work with, most of the pastors I work with and their public speaking are relatively young. And by that, I mean like 40 and under who are just like really young and starting out or they were in another role in the church and they've moved into a communicating role. And um, I think it's always dangerous to try to be prophetic. What I love about, there are times, matter of fact, I just got through preaching this morning for two weeks from now, a message that I know is going to make people upset. And I don't care about the criticism for that because I am, I am aware of the place it came from. And I have learned, I think, at this point in my ministry time to be able to communicate really hard truths with love. And lots of times, especially when we're younger, we communicate hard truths because we're angry with someone in the church. We're angry with something in the world, not from a righteous anger. Yeah. But I mean, there were times when I was a much younger preacher where I would take out my feelings of inadequacy, insecurity, anger, and visit that on the church. Like I preached one of the worst Christmas messages ever in the history of preaching one year because I was just kind of hacked at the church. And I thought, well, you know, this is really going to get them. And like, it was, you know, the, the deathly silence of uh, no response at all. I tend to be provocative when I dare not, when I'm not trying to be provocative. (laughs) And uh, just allowing whatever is to happen to happen. And then I have much fewer feelings about it. I feel much less criticized. I feel not like some kind of, yeah, I was right and you just take it. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm okay because I know how prophetic messages are received. And I know how uh, I know my the inner the orientation of my inner world is what I'm trying to say. I know the orientation of my inner world yeah. when I delivered it. I think you just gave us a phenomenal gift, actually. I love the way you nuanced out where your heart is and the wisdom of how to be prophetic. Because as I was listening to you, I think you you offered a great correction that the criticism about how you lead the church or these various other things versus based on the topic of a well well thought through and biblically soaked message. I think that's a great piece of feedback. I'm going to bounce off that, Sean, because if I recall, you're actually working on a book on communication. Is that still in the works? Yeah. So um, the first manuscript manuscript um, is is at the publisher now. And what that is, is it's the tentative title right now. It's called Speaking by the Numbers, and it's using Enneagram wisdom for public speaking. The essential, you know, the, to get out of brass tacks on that is I learned that I was speaking to all of these groups as an Enneagram three, expecting that everyone in the world heard as an Enneagram three. Yeah. And so there were people whose hearts and motivations, where they live that I was missing because I assumed as we all do that the rest of the world saw the world the way that I do. Yeah. Yeah. And if I recall right, uh, it's been a while since we've chatted about it. I think your emphasis in the book is on stances, right? Because it'd be hard mm-hmm. to nuance a message to 27 not- subtypes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the yeah. stances is really where you were writing. It's, mm-hmm. uh, let me just testify, Sean, you preached at our church a few weeks ago, actually, it wasn't long ago. And I sat there thinking, I'm going to get fired. Like, um, <laughs> just your gift of presence. And I believe it was an 18-minute message and I struggled to stay under 30. 
Um, and we, I teach a public teaching class to our, our staff and residents at our church mm-hmm. and we used your sermon because we're working on um, pause, pace and pitch is a mm-hmm. lot of what we're... And your ability to manage pause and pace was, I thought you were a maestro because that particular message was like a, a, a gentle message of welcoming us in. And it just felt like you were just loving on us slowly and gently. It was really a beautiful experience. So for, for listeners, man, stay tuned for Sean's book because <laughs> you've got a communication gift and I don't see many people writing about how to craft a message appropriately for the way different people's hearts are motivated. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very kind. I enjoyed um, preaching for your church. And I just, I'm a preaching geek and I love homiletics and storytelling. So that's, if I could do anything at any given time, it would be something around preaching, except I actually hate writing sermons. (laughs) Um, I like the idea of coming up with what a sermon could be in the future. Like, oh, I need to talk about this. I could do that. I could do this. But the actual like sitting down and pen to paper, that's my least favorite part. And then you love delivering as well when you're actually time to deliver. You enjoy that? I do. um, Much more so when there are people in the room. (laughs) (laughs) than than to a a two camera setup like uh like we're having to do right now that's what fred craddock says he says that most preachers have one aspect that just really wears them down and to figure out he teaches well the late fred craddock taught Mm -hmm. to make sure if if it's your preparation that's a downer to make sure you end it excited like actually, if you get excited, stop preparing and go do something else so you can come back to it. I've been trying that for a while because I think I'm the same. I get so energized by the idea and then writing it just ruins the perfection of what that idea could have been. <laughs> it's always a B minus version of what it could be. And then I love delivering it. That's, yeah. Well, know. well, for me, and I, I tend to lean this way, like a sermon is not a sermon when it's on the paper, yeah. when it's being rehearsed, Like even when you're listening back to a podcast later, for me, a sermon is only a sermon as the spirit uses it in the moment with the hearer and the, and the proclaimer. Like there's something about the charismatic moment that makes a sermon a sermon. Yeah. Um, Rather than just content. Like I hate the word content when we talk about sermons and when people say, oh yeah, I missed church last week, but you know, I listened to the sermon on the podcast and like, <laughs> you know, as if my main concern every week is being heard, which is not like my main concern for you is not for you to hear what I have to say. Yeah. But like, there's something about that interaction that is unique and beautiful in the world. And, uh, I want us to get back to it safely and appropriately. So That's I'm not rushing cool. to get back. I'm not, yeah. um, but I look forward to the day when we can be in the same room experiencing the move of God at the same time. Yeah. Are you a Fred Craddock fan, by the way? I am. I'm a Fred Craddock devotee. Like on my desk here, uh, right behind my monitor is his book, Preaching. Um, I have Craddock sermons. Like I pull up and listen to over and over and over and over again. I think he and Barbara Brown Taylor are yeah. the absolute masters. At They're homiletics. the premium. Yeah. yeah. Gold All right, let, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard Fred Craddock's sermon? It's called, What Should We Do With The Gift? I don't think I have. Okay, I'm going to send it to you. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. I know we're recording. Best sermon I've ever... I, I'm a Craddock fan. I actually moved to America because I, w- I wanted to go to the college where Craddock taught. 
So that's how like I'm I'm a little idolatrous with Fred Craddock. If if he if I had a chance, I would have hugged him longer than he was comfortable being hugged. Yeah. For sure. There's no question. But what shall I do with a gift? It's his it's his sermon later in life to a group of preachers at a homiletics convention. Okay. And I think I'll I'll send it to you. It's probably the most masterful. Have have you heard preaching as orientation, disorientation, and reorientation? Yes. So I go back to that at least once a year, just yeah. as a just as a homiletical reset for me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Oh good. We'll share some yeah, <laughs> we'll share some nerd stuff back and forth. <laughs> Well, Sean, um, you know, you're actually heading out on vacation soon. And it just makes me deeply uncomfortable that you would go into vacation in any sort of moment of rest or well-being. So on that note, it's time for the gauntlet of anxiety questions. Okay. All right. We're in season five. We have fresh questions. Uh, let's <laughs> just, just the name of it gives me anxiety. Is that the I'm, idea? It's, <laughs> I, I just, I tried leading for years at my church with like pastoral care and emotional health. Lately, I just find domination and threats. It's just <laughs> my, my staff don't fear me enough. I've tried. And so I thought I'm going to try more domination. So yeah, it's really about just power, just unadulterated power and fear mongering. Yeah, that's how I would describe it. Well, honesty is a great place to start, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the tools that I, I teach, it's in my book, is a tool called a verbatim. And the best idea I know how to describe a verbatim, it's actually an essay that we make people write on a leadership encounter that didn't go the way they wanted. And when you do a lot of verbatims, what happens is you keep running into yourself because a verbatim is a tool to help you figure out how do I keep showing up uh, when I'm anxious in a way that I wish I didn't show up? It's a very complicated question, but here's the question. Uh, where do you keep running into yourself in your leadership? I have a tendency to say no for other people. And so when I step out to lead things, I either ask for too much permission or anticipate objections that I don't know how to overcome or haven't figured out how to overcome. And so then I abandon the idea or the project before anyone actually says, no, that won't work. I love that answer. Thank you. That's that's really good. When you fall short, either as a leader or as a parent, are you in a position to name for us the story that your inner critic says about you? Anytime as a leader or as a parent, in my case, I, I find that I don't expect perfection out of myself as a parent, but for some reason I do as a leader. And so when I do not lead perfectly, my inner critic kicks in. It usually says something like, you should know better by now. That would be the strongest message. Would you have a message uh, that you'd be able to communicate? I think the message that I get back to myself is one that says something along the lines of make sure you stay in your lane. And so don't get too adventurous. Don't get too out of the box. Make sure that you stay in the wheelhouse of what you're, um, what you know and other people know you to be good at. Is, is that a, as you share that, is that like a kindness or is that like a, 
putting baby in a corner kind of thing. Like just <laughs> it's it's protective. So I could lie and say it was kindness, but it's it's ego protective. Okay. And um, it's much more like just to kind of stay in your corner. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Don't pop your head up. Right. Yeah. Great. I mean, this is this is from from your part of the world, right? Like the tall poppy gets tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. That that's what I was that's what I was trying to figure out if that's what it is. Like, don't you get too big for your boots, kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Great. A lot of faith leaders, when they're backstage, when they're not on a microphone, they'll admit a gap between what they teach others and what they experience in themselves. Right. People who can tell others about the grace of God in a way that's so eloquent, you can make someone cry, but they struggle to experience the grace for themselves. Is there a gap in your life between what you believe or proclaim and what you struggle to experience? It's not that you don't believe it, but it's harder for you to encounter it. Well, first of all, I have many of those places. So in my preaching, I've just decided to confess them. Um, But one of the places that I've just actually discovered in the last couple of years is that I'm really intent on believing in the canonic life-giving work of God that is non-coercive and non-controlling. And I am coming to terms with the fact that I really do like control. Okay. Much more so than I've been willing to admit to myself for my entire life up until this point. Okay. Awesome. The final question is one I asked you last time, but COVID's happened since then. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when in your life do you feel fully loved? But I'd I'd like to ask, okay, when in the last several months, what's been an experience where you felt fully loved? Uh, My birthday is in June. And so my brother's birthday, I have an older brother who's three years older than me. And so our birthdays are three years and three days apart. And so growing up in a family that we didn't have a lot of resources, if we had birthday parties, they were always combined birthday parties. And because there was in the summer, not very many people could show for anything. And we were always playing. We were always in the middle of all stars for baseball. And so I just didn't never I just never had parties. And so this year, our staff did what we normally do for somebody's birthday party during COVID. And there was like the little car parade comes by your house. And that was really great. But while I was in a meeting, because it was on Monday, my wife and daughters decorated the house because I had a long meeting and it was, they threw me a little kid's birthday party. And so things that I like, I'm really into the space program. So there are like all these blow ups of astronauts. I've got one on the, in the corner, um, still in my office. There was a pinata with candy that we did. And so everything was like you would do it for a little kid. And it was the best birthday ever. So that moment right there, like, will I will carry that with me forever. What a beautiful answer. Hey, folks, I know it became this crazy trend to launch a podcast during COVID. Of course, this podcast <laughs> got started well before then. Let me just say, the best reason to start something like this is the people you meet. And uh, I got to meet Sean through the podcast. He's since been kind enough to speak at the church. I'll probably be doing some work for Sean's church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my favorite part of podcasting is people whose wisdom has been forged from pain and really good thinking. Sean, that's what I think of with you. I think that has been so evident on this interview where you bring a nuance and a care and a particularity, which that that gift itself helps us feel cared for. So for Enneagram 3s, you may not be one, but I bet you know one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sean's book, 40 Days on Being a 3. I'll have a link in the notes. Sean will be releasing a book probably next year on communication, public speaking. Uh, this is just a guy that you want to add to your list to, to learn from. So Sean, 
Thank you so much for being on the show. This was a real treat. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.